Solidarność, the Workers' Movement and the Rebirth of Poland in 1980-81 by Mark Osborne. The August Events, 1980. Edward Babiuk, the Prime Minister, announced a plan to eliminate Poland's massive trade deficit by the end of 1980. Exports were to rise to 25% and supplies to home stores were to be cut by 15%. The party intended to raise food prices unannounced bit by bit, starting on the 1st of July, but that did not save them. Workers at the Ursus tractor plant and the massive Huta Warsawa steelworks stopped work. The authorities had decided to ride out any protests by immediately conceding pay rises to compensate for the price hike. The striking tractor and steelworkers went back after getting 10% pay increases. On the 11th of July, managers of major plants were summoned to Warsaw and told to settle any dispute quickly. In fact, the policy had the effect of encouraging strikes as workers quickly knew that any action would immediately win pay rises. The official media was silent, but the BBC in London and the US government-funded Munich-based Radio Free Europe reported on the strike wave. Jacek Kuron, helped by a student of English from the Krakow Group, coordinated information from a single phone in his Warsaw flat and passed it on to the Western radio stations who then broadcast the news back into the country. By the end of July, workers in 68 enterprises had stopped work. Wage increases granted in July and early August stood at $1.1 billion. The most dangerous strikes had taken place in Lublin in southeast Poland, where rail and other transport workers had brought the city of 300,000 to a standstill for three days. The army had been used to deliver milk and bread. Gierak had met Soviet leader Brezhnev in Crimea in late July. Gierak stayed in the USSR and went on holiday and was still there when the Gdansk strike started on Thursday the 14th of August. Earlier that day, Babiuk had looked out of his window to see Warsaw at a standstill. The bus drivers, who he thought had settled, were back out on strike and had been joined by the tram workers. Nevertheless, no one had a clue what was about to start in Gdansk. The area around Gdansk Bay held 800 factories employing over half a million workers. At the centre of industrial life was the Lenin shipyard with 17,000 workers and dozens of workshops spread over three square kilometres, divided into two parts by a waterway and connected by a single bridge. The Lenin shipyard had been founded in 1946 on the site of German yards which had been partially destroyed during the war. The Free Trade Union Group had tried and failed to get a strike in July against the price rises. They were pessimistic about their chances in August. But the week before the strike, a number of members of the group met at Piotr Dyke's flat in Vyshest, just north of Gdansk. Dyke was a member of Young Poland, and they were meeting to celebrate the release of two political prisoners. Bogdan Borisevich, Lech Walesa, Andrzej Gwiazda, Alina Piankowska, a young nurse, Bogdan Felski, a 23-year-old from the Lenin Yard, and Andrzej Kolejez, a 20-year-old who had been fired from the Lenin Yard, decided to call a strike in defence of Alan Valentinovich, who had been sacked that day. They went out into the courtyard, worried that Dyke's flat was bugged, and decided to call the strike the following week. Anna Valentinovich, Pani Anna, or Mrs Anna as she was known, was a crane operator in the W2 section, who had worked at the Lenin Yard for 30 years, originally as a welder. She was in her early 50s, with thick glasses and hair in a bun. She was probably the most respected and the best speaker amongst the KZWZZW activists. She had been fired just a few months before she was due to retire. In the past few years, she had been harassed, transferred, warned and threatened. Now she was off sick. But the free trade union activists thought the workers might back her. They kept the strike date secret, even from the other activists. In fact, the original date they set for action had been Wednesday the 13th of August, 
but Lech Valenta had childcare responsibilities and the younger workers wanted him there, so the strike was put back a day. In August 1980, Lech Valenza was a 37-year-old electrician and a good Catholic with six children living with his wife, Danuta, in a two-bedroom flat. He had been on the strike committee at the Lenin Yard in December 1970 and had met Jerek in January 1971. Valenza had been sacked in 1976 for his involvement with the underground opposition. He later found work repairing machinery but was dismissed again in January 1979. He was hired by Electro Monetas and sacked again in January 1980. The week before the strike, Valenza had been detained again, in front of his flat while pushing his baby in a pram. The police had taken him and left the child alone in the street for a neighbour to find. He claimed to have been detained 100 times between 1976 and 1980. Valenza possessed an acute sense of the mood of the workers around him and an ability to respond and lead, and lead them. He saw himself as a man full of anger and an uncouth man. Early on the morning of Thursday the 14th of August, Borisevich led a team leafleting for the strike for Valentinovich, meeting the trams and trains that dropped workers coming from the north. Another met trains coming from the south. At 5.45am, Yurtsi Borizak had gathered 20 or 30 workers round him in the locker room of K5, a small workshop on the far side of the yard. They had leaflets and posters advocating Alevan Valentinovich's reinstatement and a 1,000 zloty pay rise to cover the price increases. Some of the older workers were worried. They had families and were not sure the strike would succeed. About 30 workers started to march through the yard, calling on others to follow them. In W3, Bogdan Felsky and two of his mates had posters up. About 50 workers were around him when the division's director demanded to know what was going on. The department's, secretary turn the department's party secretary turned up and tried to grab the banner the workers had made, but he was pushed back. About 100 workers were marching now, demanding that others join them. Some did, some just watched and waited. The workers went past the electrician's section, W4, and two old friends of Lech Valenza, Stanislav Burry and Henrik Lenarsiak, both of whom had been active in the strikes of 1970 and 1976, began to organise their department. As the protests got to K3 and K1, there were 2,000 marchers, and a cheer went up. They marched through every department once again. Now the crowd may have been as big as 8,000. As they passed the main gate, gate 2, there was a moment when it looked as if the workers would surge through and into the town. The Free Trade Union people stopped that by asking for a minute's silence for those killed in 1970. The core people wanted an occupation, not another riot, precisely to avoid a repeat of 1970. The leaders moved the crowd 100 metres into the shipyard, into the big square. Clemens Gniek, the director, confronted them. And Yertsi Borachak told him they were striking for Alan Valentinovich and they would only speak to him later after their meeting. To constitute the strike committee, Borachak took a list of 20 department reps on a scrap of paper. From the top of a bulldozer, Gniak attempted to get the workers back to work, saying negotiations could begin when work restarted. As he spoke, Lech Valenza was climbing over the four metre high perimeter fence. Workers were drifting away when Valenza clambered onto the bulldozer and tapped Gniak on the shoulder. Remember me? He asked the boss. Valenza spoke briefly and announced an occupation. Many of the workers remembered Valenza from when he worked at the yard and others had heard him speak at the commemoration meeting in December. Valenza asked the workers if they would accept him on their strike committee. The workers roared their approval and a strike committee was set up, now with 21 members. They went to the canteen in W4 to formulate their demands. The committee refused to negotiate until Anna Valentinovich was with them and demanded the director's car was sent to pick her up. Early that morning, Alan Valentinovich had been at the shipyard's health centre, outside the shipyard a couple of blocks away from the main gate. 
Valentinovich tried to phone Curon in Warsaw, but the telephone operator was too afraid to put the call through. The Yard's phones were cut, and Valentinovich's friend and fellow activist, Alina Piankowska, who worked at the clinic, put the call through to Curon later that morning. Piankowska, a 27-year-old widow with a young child, then went down to the Yard. Discovering no one had organised food for the workers, she put out an appeal via the local radio, then organised students to canvass the local area, spreading word about the occupation and looking for supplies. Valentinovich was determined to get inside the yard. There had been a strike in her defence in January that fizzled out because she was not able to get into the shipyard. This had allowed the manager to persuade the workers to return to work. First, she had to get rid of the four plainclothes police that were trailing her. She lost them by running from a department store, across tram lines and then into a friend's apartment. She could see the puzzled police outside through a crack in the curtains. Eventually, Valentinovich was tracked down and delivered to the Lenin Yard in the director's Fiat Larder. A workers' militia was set up to take charge of all security at the yard. The militia's first act was to enforce a ban on vodka. In 1980, there were one million alcoholics in Poland, and apparently 40% of all alcohol was consumed at work. Early on Friday morning, Andrzej Kolodziej left the Lenin Yard where he had been sacked in January and went to work at his new job at the Paris Commune shipyard in Gdynia, which employed 10,000 workers. Kolodziej went from brigade to brigade, especially talking to the young workers. He told them the Lenin Yard was on strike and they should stop work too. He was 20 years old and had only been working there for one day after having lied to get the job about the reason he was sacked from the Lenin Yard. The Paris Commune workers were tempted but not convinced. Later that morning, he saw a group forming in the shipyard square. The atmosphere was very tense. Someone had cut the electricity. Very quickly, a crowd of 2,000 formed. Kolodziej stopped the workers heading to meet the management and persuaded them to discuss their demands first. At the Elmore factory, the 2,000 workers were quickly organised to strike under a 36-member elected committee led by Gwiazda and a party member, 27-year-old Bogdan Lis. Next door to the Lenin Yard, about a fifth of the workers were party members and many were striking, although Lis was the only one to join the strike leadership. By mid-morning, the tram and bus workers were on strike. 9,000 at Remontau and 4,000 workers at the northern shipyards were out. By midday, 50,000 in the Tri-City ports were on strike. Inside the Lenin Yard, talks were beginning in the Health and Safety Centre, broadcast over the yard's PA system so every worker could hear. Director Gniak started by proposing the strike committee should be enlarged to represent all divisions in the yard. Valenza reluctantly agreed and negotiations were suspended for a few hours while every division elected four representatives. The new 150-strong committee assembled in the afternoon and now included management supporters and less militant workers from some of the less active sections. Then Gniak agreed to a wage hike, reinstatement for sack workers, a monument for those killed in 1970 and no reprisals. Delegations from other factories started to arrive, converging on the Lenin Yard as the biggest strike centre. But by Saturday there was only one sticking point. The Lenin workers were holding out for a 2000 lotty rise. Gniak agreed to 1500 and the strike committee quickly voted to settle. It was three in the afternoon and Gniak demanded Valenza announce the end of the strike. Valenza did so, tried to make the best of it. Management got onto the works radio and demanded the yard be cleared. Workers began streaming out. Outside the health centre there was utter confusion. The rep from Remontau started yelling at Valenza that the Gdansk Yard had betrayed them. Henrika Kushvonos, the woman who led the bus and tram workers, shouted at Valenza, If you abandon us, we'll be lost. Buses can't face tanks. Alina Plienkowska went to gate three and got the militia to shut the gates. She started appealing to the workers to stay put. Some of the women outside the yard, angry, spat at and jeered at the workers who were leaving. Valenza, sensing the mood, spoke to the crowd outside. 
Did they want the strike to continue? Yes, they shouted, they did. Valenza declared the strike would continue as a solidarity strike. The PA system was now shut down, and so Valenza and Valentinovic went round the yard on an electric trolley, spreading the word through a megaphone. The strike had been on a knife edge and would have collapsed without the very small number of worker activists organised in advance with clear aims and with respect based on a history of struggle among the broader mass of workers. In fact, the strike would not have started without their actions and planning. By five o'clock, there were only about 1,500 workers left inside, mostly militant younger workers. But that evening, the strike rose to a new level as delegates from 21 striking enterprises declared the Interfactory Strike Committee, MKS. Joanna and Adrig Vyazda, Bogdan Lys and Bogdan Borisevich worked out a set of demands. The original 16 demands reached a completed form on Sunday evening after being debated by the MKS delegates. The final 21 demands were an enormous step forward for the working class opposition of Eastern Europe. However, various demands, such as the call for free elections, were not included. The demands implicitly accepted certain limits on the movement's aspirations. The question of completely abolishing censorship and free elections had been deliberately omitted. Bogdan Borisevich commented, You know what happened when they abolished censorship in Czechoslovakia in 1968. After 8am on Sunday morning, 17th of August, people started arriving from the town. The gates were decked out with flowers and portraits of John Paul II. Over 5,000 people attended mass at 9am. Management then attempted to break the strike by pitting those inside the yard against the workers who were coming in on Monday morning. Before 6am, Gineak used the PA system to tell the workers the strike had been settled on Saturday. Valencia made a patriotic speech to the workers and they sang a hymn. The workers outside the gate were still undecided and somewhat hostile. The gates were opened and a young worker shouted, If you think you're a real shipyard worker, then come in. A group of 30 younger workers broke ranks and walked in. Many followed. Strikers on both sides of the entrance burst into applause. Across Poland, the importance of Gdansk was being felt. Szczecin is a town of 400,000 in the northwest of Poland. 55,000 worked in shipbuilding, including 12,000 at the Vorsky Yard. On Saturday the 16th of August, unexpectedly, the entire workforce got a 10% pay increase. Work began as normal on Monday, but by mid-morning a mass meeting had been convened and decided to elect delegates from each department and discuss the events. A strike was soon called. Soon word came that the Parnika Yard and the Griffier Repair Yard had stopped work too. The Vorsky workers elected a committee led by Marian Jurcic, a strike leader from 1970, and produced a list of 36 demands of their own. At 8pm, the workers listened through car radios and the PA systems of occupied workplaces as Jerek addressed the nation. He offered money but rejected all the strikers, but strikers rejected... He offered money but rejected all the strikers' political demands. A groan went round the Lenin yard as Jerek told them there was already freedom to criticise in Poland. By that evening, 263 enterprises had sent delegates to the MKS. The delegation had turned up at the Lenin Yard from Elblag, a city 50 kilometres from Gdansk, closer to the Soviet border, and MKS had been formed in Elblag. Having tried to settle with the Lenin Yard and failed, the government then tried to settle with the other enterprises. The state issued a settlement which claimed it, which it claimed it had reached agreement with workers' committees from 17 enterprises. The government's representative, Tadeusz Pika, said a deal had been reached on 20 issues, including maternity leave, a pay rise of 1,500 slotty, Saturday working and health and housing. By the evening, the government strategy was coming apart as the workers in the 17 factories arrived in the Lenin Yard. Delegates from the Techmore and Cleanmore plants told the MKS that Pika had struck a deal with the factory bosses and the factory party secretary, not the workers' representatives. In Warsaw, a dozen core members were arrested, including Kuron and Mishnik. 
A barrage of propaganda appeared in the press, accusing the strikers of undermining the national economy. The strikes were spreading. The Nova Huta steel plant near Krakow struck for two hours in solidarity. A delegation of miners from Lower Silesia arrived at the Lenin Yard at 4pm. The MKS now represented committees at 304 enterprises. 64 prominent Warsaw intellectuals issued an appeal. The crisis arrived as a result of broken promises, of all the attempts to suppress the crisis, of disregard for civil rights. It is impossible to rule the Polish nation without listening to its voice. Polish workers are fighting for a better and more dignified life. The place of all progressive intelligentsia is on the side of the workers. Timothy Gartenash reports an interesting incident which took place on Thursday the 21st of August. Irinea Szlesniak from the personnel department demanded to speak to the wor- during the workers' discussion in the Lenin Hall. He read a statement which lasted 10 minutes. He asked for Jerek to come to the yard, describing Jerek as like the Pope, and said, Edward Jerek, who alone we trust because you are to us like a father. Gartenash comments, Astonishingly, the delegates crowned the peroration with resounding applause. Then Anna Valentinovich took the microphone. I know Mr. Lesniak, she said. I know him because he has persecuted me for years. It was he who sacked me two weeks ago. Suddenly the hall was on its feet. Delegates who a moment before had applauded so vigorously now crowded around the white-faced Lesniak on the podium, fists raised, threatening to lynch him. Valenza seized the microphone, shouted for calm, and then personally escorted Lesniak through the now silent crowd to the gate. Gartenash comments that the crowd of 600 workers had revealed something how unclear many MKS delegates were about their strategy and goals. By Friday the 22nd of August, 200,000 workers were on strike along the Baltic coast. The Gdansk MKS included 350 workplace delegates, and the Szczesin Interfactory Committee included over 60 enterprises. The government was still reluctant to recognise the MKS as an entity they would negotiate with. But later that day, they began to talk. 30,000 copies of the first edition of a strike bulletin were printed, Core activist Konrad Bielinski, who worked for the Samistad publisher Nova, began, produ- began production. The bulletin stated, The news in the press, radio and television is both distorted and incomplete. The whole country awaits genuine and accurate news from the strike-bound Baltic coast. The strike action is coordinated by the democratically elected MKS. A false impression is being created that the workers in public services have not joined the strike. In fact, they joined us very early but continue to maintain essential services with the full consent of the MKS. Our demands are completely within the law and in no way in conflict with the existing system or the government's political alliances. In other words, the MKS was saying they did not intend to threaten PZPR's grip on power, nor the relationship with the USSR. At 8pm on Saturday the 23rd of August, the government and party delegation arrived at the Lenin Yard by bus. As their bus nudged through the crowd, the workers drummed on the side. As the state's team got off the bus, 1,000 workers stared at them. Deputy Prime Minister Miroslav Jagielski faced the union delegation across the Formica table. One wall was glass and dozens of press people from all over the world were looking in. MKS delegates sat facing the party bosses. Jagielski was dressed in a good suit and looked like a Western banker. The Jagielski's left was Zbigniew Zielinski, who stands out by virtue of his grossness. Fat-faced, pot-bellied, grunting, he looks like a caricature of a corrupt communist functionary. Directly opposite him sits Andrei Gvyazda, founding father of the free trade unions on the coast, with the bearded, emaciated face of an El Greco saint and memories of a lifelong struggle that began in Siberia. He and his mother were deported by the Soviets in 1940. His father had been imprisoned by the Nazis. 
These faces tell of two worlds and two moralities which now confront each other across the table. From the Polish Revolution by Timothy Gartanash. Jagielski talked to the workers as if he were talking to children. What he said was broadcast across the shipyard. One audience was the MKS members who were crammed in the hall. Beyond the delegates were the Lenin workers listening in the yard. And beyond the gate were hundreds of women workers. Jagielski declared that the strikes were breaking the economy. He said the Polish bureaucrats enjoy no privileges and, to audible sighs and muttering, that there were no political prisoners in Poland. The MKS delegation insisted that a precondition to talks continuing was that the phone connections that had been cut, separating Gdansk from the rest of the country, were restored. Zielinski declared that a hurricane had destroyed the Warsaw phone exchange the previous night. It was explained to Zielinski that the phone lines were cut on the 15th of August, a week before the hurricane. The party in crisis reshuffled itself, with Gierek supporters losing out and the hardliner Stefan Oslovsky brought back from East Germany. The party meeting was shown concluding on television. Inside the yards, as the PZPR leaders sang the Internationale, the workers rose to sing the national anthem. Behind the scenes, other private negotiations took place. The party was looking for a deal. Significantly, Tadeusz Mazowiecki, one of the intellectuals brought in to help the union, suggested a compromise on independent unions. He proposed a fallback position, democratisation of the existing state-run unions. The MKS rejected the idea. The workers knew what they wanted. They wanted their own independent force, and they knew that this was the only guarantee that they had that they would not be cheated by the state. They had been cheated before. The workers had already gone far beyond what some of the pro-worker intelligentsia thought was possible. The intellectuals tended to hold the movement back. Bronislav Geremek and Mazowiecki had arrived on the 22nd of August with a message of support from 62 Warsaw intellectuals. The strike committee had asked them to help advise the workers on the negotiations. On Tuesday the 26th of August, the 13th day of occupation, members of the Workers' Defence Guard linked arms to allow the state's delegation peacefully into the yard. Valencia opened by declaring, We do not want to disturb the principles of social ownership of the means of production. We consider our factories to be the property of the Polish nation, but we demand that we should be the real masters in the factory and in the country. Jagielski said that the government promised in some cases to respect the right to strike. Valencia and Gwiazda demanded the right to free trade unions, stating that this was more important than every other demand. Gwiazda talked about the existing unions, which did not defend the workers' interests, but on the contrary accommodated management, all the time ready to act hand-in-hand with management against the workers' interests. He said the state unions could remain, but new independent ones should be permitted. He then went on to discuss the freedom to speak, demanding that workers should have the right to publish. It is necessary that we are able to write the truth, irrespective of whether or not this, this truth suits the current leadership. Workers have to have freedom of speech when they are right and when they are wrong. Discussion is only possible when there are, when there are opinions which are not considered in advance to be the correct opinions. The atmosphere outside the room was electric and loud cheering was heard inside the hall after Gwiazda concluded. The discussion was left to a smaller committee while delegates in the hall heard that miners in, Vro- in the Wroclaw area had declared an MKS, the fourth. In Wroclaw, 30 factories employing 30,000 workers were striking. That night, the ageing Cardinal Wyszynski spoke on television, preaching peace, calm, reason, prudence and responsibility for the Polish nation. The church was helping the regime. In the Lenin yard, the workers' reaction was a disappointment. The devout Let Valenza tried to shrug off the Cardinal's attempt to hold back the workers' movement. The next morning's paper, Tribuna Ludu, 
warned of a catastrophe which, in a thinly veiled threat, could lead to a Russian invasion. On Wednesday the 27th of August, 500 enterprises were on strike in and around Gdansk. Strikes had begun in Bigdosish and Toron, industrial centres south of Gdansk. The car factory in Bielsko-Biala was out, the bus workers had struck in Krakow. The Nova Huta steel workers were drawing up a list of demands. In Gdansk, a series of discussions had begun behind the main scene involving small groups from each side. On the workers' side, each group had three members of the intelligentsia on hand to advise them. There was interesting testimony from the sociologist Jadwiga Staniskis about this process. Staniskis was there to help the workers' team, but she was alarmed by this backroom process of negotiation, which proceeded in a friendly manner because, in their view, the six intellectuals were all from the same Warsaw social circles. She regarded the internal loyalty among the intellectuals to be a danger for the workers, a snare. Certainly, the middle-class advisers played a temporising role through Solidarność's existence. The workers and the bureaucrats both understood the centrality of the demand for free trade unions. The government side declared, your demand for independent unions has become an ideological precedent. The government wanted the text to include an explicit recognition of the party's leading role. On the morning of Thursday the 28th of August, the questions of censorship and political prisoners were debated. The author, Lech Bukowski, white-haired and in his 50s, stopped short of demanding the abolition of censorship but demanded legal guarantees to allow free expression and the truthful provision of information. Andrzej Gwiazda, living under intense pressure and with little sleep, spoke about the student victimisations of 1968 and the sackings which followed the strikes of 1970 and 1976. He asked, Mr Premier, this is the key issue. Are we going to live in a democratic system or a police state? People are afraid even to speak out and this has to be done away with. Outside the gates, listening to Gwiazda over loudspeakers, his words were passionately received by thousands of workers. Valencia was charismatic and passionate, but Gwiazda got to the point. Jagielski appeared to appeared close to concluding an agreement in Gdansk. But from Warsaw, the Central Committee's ideological department warned of, warned of anti-socialist elements amongst the strikers. The warning was echoed in the national press. The ideological department reckoned the independent unions would have practical function of an opposition party. They would give birth to a situation of dual power. They were right. On Friday the 29th, further detentions of Warsaw dissidents took place as commissions worked in the background on the details of an agreement. Strengthening the workers' position, 20,000 Silesian copper miners joined the Baltic Coast strikers. A delegate from Silesia in Jerich's backyard arrived at the Lenin Yard with a message of solidarity. The country was close to a general strike. Inside, the Politburo, the hardliner Stefan Oslovsky, was arguing that the state of war should be declared. He was opposed by Jaroselsky, Defence and Kania, Internal Security. Jagielski was instructed to settle with the strikers peacefully as quickly as possible. On Saturday 30th of August, a large banner was hung from the shipyard walls. Proletarians of all factories unite. Jagielski appeared calm as Valencia opened a new round of talks in the Glastin conference room. Point one of the agreement began to accept trade unions as free and independent of the party and contained seven subsections. The first read, the activity of the trade unions in People's Poland has not lived up to the hopes and aspirations of the workers. We thus consider that it will be beneficial to create new, new union organisations which will run themselves and which will be the authentic expressions of the working class. The document added that the old unions would continue to exist. In return, the workers conceded to the party that the new unions would not constitute a political party and will recognise the leading role of the PZPR in the state and will not oppose the existing system of international alliances. Jagielski wanted progress quickly and the further points of the agreement were run through in outline. 
He told the meeting he would go to Warsaw to get authority to sign the deal and would return later that day. He wanted work to start again almost immediately. Valenza declared work would start again on Monday. And one more thing Valenza demanded. Arresting core members should stop. If they start doing something wrong, we'll stop them ourselves. Jagielski said he would look into it. As Jagielski left, arguments broke out about the concessions the unions had made to the party. Some workers argued that the acceptance of the party's leading role was a betrayal. Mazioviecki, the advisor, tried to smooth over the issue. Valenza answered the charge directly. It would be better without it, but it was necessary and we must all understand that. Valenza then proposed the MKS issue an ultimatum to the government demanding the release of the arrested core activists. The demand was accepted by acclaim and Valenza had the unity of the conference room round him again. Father Jankowski led the 9am mass outside the gates on Sunday morning, 31st of August. The crowd was enormous. The final round of talks began at 11.30am. Gwiazda broke into the discussion to ask Jagielski about the list of detainees he had, been, he had provided. Jagielski hedged. Valentinovich, then named Miroslav Chodzetsky, head of the opposition printing organisation Nova, saying he's in jail now. Valenza said, if they are not released, we will strike again. As the two sides resumed their meeting at 4.30pm, preparing to sign the agreement that would end the strike and legalise the free trade unions, Valenza asked about the core prisoners. Jagielski declared that the prosecutor's office would make the decision by midday the following day, Monday the 1st of September. As the MKS Presidium and Government Commission entered the JAM conference hall, the television lights came on. It was five o'clock and millions of Poles watched on television. Lech Valenza, true to himself and his beliefs, ended the strike. We go back to work on the 1st of September. We all know what this day reminds us of, the Nazi invasion of 1939. About the motherland about the national cause, about the common interests of the family whose name is Poland. Have we achieved everything we wanted? Frankly, no, not everything, but we've achieved a lot. We have the most important thing, our independent self-governing trade unions. This is our guarantee for the future. I proclaim the strike to be over. The two sides signed off the 21 points filed in a blue plastic binder. Valenza used a foot-long red and white pen, a souvenir of the Pope's visit. Proud and glorious Polish working class have won the right to free and independent union organisations. The events of August and the workers' victory was the single greatest act by a working class against the bureaucratic Stalinist ruling class that the world had ever seen. The next stage of the struggle had begun. The 21 demands. 1. Acceptance of free trade unions independent of the Communist Party and of enterprises in accordance with Convention No. 87 of the International Labour Organization concerning the right to form free trade unions. 2. A guarantee of the right to strike and of security of strikers. 3. Compliance with the constitutional guarantee of freedom of speech, the press and publication, including freedom for independent publishers and the availability of the mass media to representatives of all faiths. 4. A return to former rights to 1. People dismissed from work after the 1917-1976 strikes. 2. Students expelled because of their views. The release of all political prisoners, among them Edmund Zebraczynski, Jan Koslowski and Marek Kozlosowski. A halt in repression of the individual because of personal conviction. 5. Availability to the mass media of information about the formation of the Interfactory Strike Committee and publication of its demands. 6. Bringing the country out of its crisis situation by the following means. A. 
making public complete information about the socio-economic situation, b enabling all social classes to take part in the discussion of the reform programme. 7. Compensation of all workers taking part in the strike for the period of the strike. 8. An increase in the pay of each worker by 2,000 zloty a month. 9. Guaranteed automatic increases in pay on the basis of increases in prices and decline in the real income. 10. A full supply of food products for the domestic markets with exports limited to surpluses. 11. The introduction of food coupons for meat and meat products until the market stabilises. 12. The abolition of commercial prices and sales for Western currencies in the so-called internal export companies. 13. Selection of management personnel on the basis of qualifications, not party membership, and elimination of privileges for the state police, security service and party apparatus by equalisation of family allowances and elimination of special sales, etc. 14. Reduction in the retirement age for women to 50 and for men to 55, or regardless of age after working for 30 years for women and 35 years for men. 15. Conformity of old age pensions and annuities with what has actually been paid in. 16. Improvements in the working conditions of the health service. 17. Assurances of a reasonable number of places in daycare centres and kindergartens for the children of working mothers. 18. Paid maternity leave for three years. 19. A decrease in the waiting period for apartments. 20. An increase in the commuter's allowance to 100 slotty. 21. A day of rest on Saturday. Workers in the brigade system or round-the-clock jobs are to be compensated for the loss of free Saturdays with increased leave or other paid time off.